Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, August 26th, 2023. And our top story today, a summer or fall swoon for the stock market. Joining me now to discuss this and a lot more, financial journalist Jane King joining us from the NASDAQ. Jane, always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Of course. Always great to be with you, Jeffrey. Yep. And I see your voice has recovered. You're it's getting singing, better. Singing a lovely tune. Yes. <laughs> it's glacial, but it's improving. So um, too many things in life are like that. Jane, let's talk about the market. Um, as we discussed on the network previously with you and others, uh, August, September, typically slower months, but this week markets down slightly. No, I mean, it. Every day, it felt like we were trying to have a positive day. And then by the close, everything collapsed. Um, you're right, very light trading volume. So it feels like these moves get exaggerated. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a rocky month of August. We've had a lot of worries, interest rates, the U.S. economy, the Chinese economy. Um, there just seems to be a lot of things to worry about this month. Let's just kind of drill down. I don't want to ask you key questions about the Chinese economy, but why? I, I, I would imagine it's so large. It's got to be the second largest economy. And I think it's projected to eclipse our economy, I guess, it maybe as it was in the trajectory many years ago. But, yes. but how how big of a detractor in the in the global market is, is the Chinese economy, real estate, other things? As you mentioned, I mean, it's the second largest economy to the U.S. and the world. Um, so and, and there was a lot of optimism when they reopened, basically in January, after three years of pandemic shutdown, very harsh shutdown in China. They reopened and people thought, oh, my gosh, you know, they're going to be like the U.S. People are going to travel and spend and go to restaurants and all. And that really didn't happen like they thought it would. Um, so that was a disappointment. They've got all this property. And I've heard for years, like all the building going on in China. And they've got these empty cities. And, um, you know, and, uh, that's, I think, finally coming uh, to roost for them. So we've had some property um, companies there file for bankruptcy and, you know, and fall into, you know, all kinds of financial trouble. And uh, they're just really having a tough time. So the projections were that they were going to overtake the U.S. I think it was like 2035. Then it got pushed to like 2050. Now I'm hearing some people say it will never happen um, because they've also got demographic issues um, where they're not going to be able to have the workforce of the future to, to be able to do that. So China's certainly been a disappointment, both for investors and just for the overall global economy this year. Yeah. And that, by the way, that sounds vaguely familiar because it's not just in China. I mean, China has got to be the largest population or close to India or India, they're, they're kind of competing they're for very one close, of them. Yeah. Very close, like a billion or some odd people. But here in the US, Japan, Europe, aging workforces, we're just not producing enough babies uh, anymore. It, it, and it, and it, what that does, Jane, it's going to put strain on government. And that's where private sector businesses, uh, caregiving, uh, healthcare, I, I think are really going to thrive. Those could be huge growing industries in the future. And this is all coming at a time when the government, the U.S. government has already got enormous debts. And the fact that we're going to have to pay for people probably our age at some point, if it's still around, um, and that the younger people, you know, are, are going to be taxed. I mean, I don't know how that's all going to shake out. Um, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't paint a very bright picture for the future. Let's uh, kind of end things. I don't know on a positive note, but let's just talk about the NASDAQ. How did the NASDAQ, since you're sitting, it's right behind you, for those yes. that you not, may not see, right behind over <laughs> Jane's shoulders. Um, you know, we're focused on Jane, but you can see kind of the big screens. 
How did uh, tech stocks do this week? How did the NASDAQ do? Well, interesting. I, I don't know like where they're going to, sh- I think they're down. Like the Dow has been down. I mean, the Dow's had its worst week since March. The Nasdaq's been holding up better, but Nvidia even this week was kind of disappointing. I mean, they had earnings that were just amazing again, uh, hit a new record high, but then collapsed um, as the morning went on with trading. So even Nvidia wasn't able to hold things up. So it feels like those stocks that have really kind of kept things together this year, like Facebook and NVIDIA and uh, Tesla and some of the others are starting to cr- uh, starting to crack a little bit as well. Wasn't NVIDIA kind of like the darling uh, a couple of months ago? It mean, was. Were, was. They're the ones that kind of bumped chat GPT and really shifted everything in the high gear. Everything you read or see or, or hear now, artificial intelligence, AI, it's going to displace you. But I guess it wasn't enough to kind of boost... Yeah, I mean, their their earnings were better than expected. A profits up ninefold compared to a year ago. The stock has tripled this year. Um, I think the big question with Nvidia is they still rely on Taiwan Semiconductor uh, for like the base chips, um, and then they you know do their thing with them to make them artificially intelligent. Um, so you know maybe there's some issues there. There's back orders. They're very expensive. So there's just some things that maybe would slow down their business, but. I just get this sense overall that we've had a pretty good run up in the first half of the year and maybe it's time to take a breather. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it seems like a lot of people are going to take a breather in August and September. Jane King, always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon. Thanks. Thanks, Jane. Great to see you. When we come back, we'll take a look at some of our best segments of the week. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN Weekly. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. It's been another great week of shows with great topics. Of course, great guests. We kicked off the week with a look at how to navigate insurance denials for mental health services. Let's take a look. Yeah, you know, mental health, uh, you know, affects all of us. We all have mental health and 
um, you know, all have mental health needs. Um, but you know, certainly, uh, you know, many people struggle, um, and you know, many of those struggles got worse, uh, you know, during the pandemic and you know, in its aftermath. And also, there are many people who have uh, you know mental health conditions and um, you know substance use uh, disorders, um, which you know really need uh, you know can benefit from treatment. Uh, so it, it's uh, you know there are estimates that. Um, you know, these illnesses uh, affect, uh, you know, one in five, uh, you know, Americans at any point in time. Um, but, you know, tragically, uh, many people don't get the help they need. Um, so, uh, you know, for people who with substance, uh, you know, substance uh, misuse um, you know, challenges, um, only about 10%, you know, get the help they need. Um, so these uh, these conditions affect uh, you know all ages, uh, including older adults. I think there's uh, you know often a presumption that these are kind of younger uh, people's illnesses, and certainly they often present um, you know early on uh, you know in life. Um, but everyone uh, you know can have, anyone can have mental health challenges, um, and it's important to be able to access services um, and to you know, to get help and get support. Uh, you know, when you're struggling. So um, you're definitely all ages and everyone is affected, all groups are affected, um, but uh, you know, certainly the pandemic has had a broad, uh, broad effect across, uh, you know, all ages, um, but particularly, you know, older adults um, obviously suffered uh, you know, tremendously uh, you know, during the pandemic. Congress created, um, there's been a suicide prevention hotline uh, for a long time that was, you know, a 10 digit number um, to do, 10 digit toll free number, which is honestly hard for people to remember a 10 digit number. Um, so uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, Congress, um, you know, created, uh, we passed, passed legislation to create a three digit number, which is 988. Um, you know, much like 911, uh, 988 is meant to respond, um, you know, to mental health and, uh, you know, substance use uh, crises. So, um, someone could be having suicidal thoughts, um, or someone could just be struggling. You can call 988 and, uh, you know, have, have someone who's trained, uh, you know, talk to you um, and offer assistance over the phone. Um, now, not every, many problems can be taken, you know, care of over the phone, but not all problems. Um, sometimes people need an in-person response. Um, and so uh, many states across the country are really building up systems to respond in person if the person, uh, you know, if the individual needs it, um, yeah. with trained clinicians who can help, um, you know, if someone is having a, a mental health uh, crisis. Um, and then, you know, the third uh, kind of uh, piece to the that surrounds this new uh, three-digit hotline 988 uh, is, uh, you know, not all not all problems can be taken care of. Uh, you know, just in, uh, you know, through that in-person uh, response, through what's often called a mobile crisis uh, response team. Um, you know, sometimes people, uh, you know, need uh, treatment uh, through, you know, crisis uh, stabilization center. So an actual place that they can go. Um, so we're trying to build up, uh, build up this system, but 988 is really the center of it, much like 911 is the center of our physical health response system. And you know the the 988 number went live just over a year ago, and the response has really been tremendous, both highlighting uh, the increased uh, increased need, um, but also that people can remember a three digit number much more readily than they can remember a ten digit number. 
Um, so there have been you know, many millions of calls uh, over the past year, and it's helping people uh, you know, get the uh, assistance they need, both over the phone and increasingly uh, in person. And if they need to go somewhere, um, you know, offering, uh, offering in-person uh, you know, treatment as well. Um, you know, when that's, uh, when that's necessary, although the vast majority, um, of, uh, you know, of calls to 98, you know, can be resolved, uh, simply by talking with someone over the phone. Health insurance uh, coverage has improved, uh, you know, significantly, uh, over the years. And, um, one of the areas that I work a lot on is something called the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which for, um, you know, many types of health insurance requires, that coverage uh, be equal uh, with physical uh, health coverage. So the idea is that the you know, um, uh, you know the brain is no different from the rest of the body, and that uh, you know mental health conditions should be treated just like physical uh, health conditions. Um, and you mentioned um, you know many many Americans uh, get their health insurance uh, you know through their employers or through um, the Affordable Care Act uh, you know individual marketplace. Um, both of those uh, are subject to parity protections. Um, so in general, uh, you know, individuals should not be seeing uh, restrictive um, restrictions on uh, you know, coverage for mental health uh, and substance use uh, disorders. Now that said, um, the law hasn't always been implemented um, in a way and enforced in a way that uh, you know, is really necessary. So there are efforts right now federally um, uh, by the Biden administration to uh, strengthen the existing rules to make sure that people can actually access uh, you know, care when they need it um, in, uh, in health plans that are subject uh, to the federal, uh, federal Parity Act rules. Now, one major gap uh, that actually felt affects older adults um, is in Medicare. Um, in Medicare's coverage for mental health and substance use disorders, um, while it does cover many services, um, there are some gaps in you know what Medicare covers covers that Congress you know, needs to actually close those gaps. Um, and you know because uh, older adults should not be subject uh, should be able to get the same care that everyone else uh, gets. So there's some work that needs to be done there, uh, you know, to close some of the gaps within Medicare, including making sure that the parity rules apply. Because um, right now those parity rules don't apply uh, to Medicare, which is a significant gap that uh, the Congress needs to fix. And there's some efforts underway. And we also discussed educating board members to fulfill their fiduciary responsibilities. Let's take a look. Well, you know, we're, we're right at that midpoint of our four-year asset liability review, and that will be a session that we'll take the board through uh, in November. Uh, but remember, two years ago, we did make some changes to the portfolio. We had upped uh, the assets and more of the private markets. Uh, that would include private equity and private credit. And our private credit, uh, even though we only had half of that 5% uh, allocated at the time the returns were announced at the end of June, uh, the team, a very small but mighty team, was able to get about half that into play. And, and it uh, pretty significantly outperformed its benchmark. So that's been a really good no new story, even though it's a relatively smaller portion of the portfolio. Uh, the other part is moving you know, private equity and, and looking at private equity you know, a little bit differently and having more diversification there, not just in the fund of funds, but how can we do more co-investments? How do we get you know, access to some of the smaller managers, which I'll talk a little bit more about, our catalyst, our mosaic platform? 
as we're trying to build new entrepreneurs to get to that next, you know, next level where an institutional investor like CalPERS or the size of CalPERS can do that uh, more directly. Uh, and so I think those have done well, uh, the, you know, public equity side, the public market side, uh, we do have some drawdown risk protection still in public equity as well as fixed income uh, that did have a, a drag, an intentional you know, drag on returns. What we've always said is that the downside risk is going to hurt us more than the upside is going to help us. But you know, in November, I think it will be very important. I've got pretty significant turnover on our board and they're all in their onboarding and learning. And so we just need to go back to the building blocks with our board and explain, you know, not only the strategic asset allocation that we put in place two years ago, but also this drawdown risk protection and how it's performed since inception. So I think that will be a really good opportunity for this board to make some important decisions moving forward. Yeah, so every one of our 13 board members, and we actually have a vacancy on the board at this point in time, so there's 12, but all of them carry that very significant fiduciary responsibility, every decision made for the exclusive, exclusive benefit of being able to pay our members, our retirees. And so um, just a bit of an anecdote, I am coming up on my seventh year, if you can believe that, as a CEO at CalPERS uh, in October. Bravo, and bravo. Thank you. And there is one remaining board member who actually hired me, and that is the current board president, uh, Teresa Taylor. And so just kind of a variety of reasons for that turnover. We run member elections and every now and then, you know, someone who wanted to run again for a four-year term was not successful. And we've got a new board member coming in. We have, uh, you know, a new state controller and a newer, newer, I think, you know, newer state treasurer. So um, it's typically through member elections. We have a couple of newer governor appointees. It's the insurance representative that the governor appoints, which is, which is vacant. And so onboarding and that board education cycle uh, is is really very important to the board. It's really important to the team, and you know, really drives the way that we interact with one another. How is appropriate governance? What is the role of the board? What's the role of the team? Uh, the board has you know given the team, and I think from a good governance standpoint, a lot of delegated uh, authority, which includes you know running the investment deals, approving the investment deals. But when you have that level of delegated authority, you really have to up your transparency. You have to be able to explain to the board on a regular basis through a variety of channels how that delegation is being used. So deal flow, for example, one of the things that they're very interested in is private equity deal flow. What are we looking at? Um, what does venture look like? So we're you know, talking about funding more venture, um, this mosaic platform, are we finding the diverse entrepreneurs that we really set out to find through TPG and through Grosvenor uh, relationships? So uh, we you know, have tried to find a variety of ways, again, to make sure that they are informed. But, you know, I must you know acknowledge that I'm still trying to learn what this board's preferences are. And then we probably need to recalibrate uh, some of that data, some of that information for them. So we try to do a combination of external sessions, external onboarding sessions, as well as internal sessions with, with the team. So within, before someone even gets into their first board meeting, they're getting their fiduciary training with our general counsel and their outside fiduciary counsel. And then we run into, uh, you know, meeting directly with the investment office, reading direct uh, directly with the health plans, uh, meeting directly with the operational side of the house to understand really the significant policies that have been approved over time and just being able to answer their questions. But 
you know, I remember this, I was a trustee in Washington and it, it takes some time to, until you feel pretty comfortable that you, you, you understand not only the decisions that have been made, but also what your role is and how can you best contribute based on your own experience. So we're right in the midst of that. Uh, they're getting ready to go into another self-assessment. And uh, in January, we will get the results of that self-assessment. And I think likely onboarding will come up again. It's come up in the past and uh, some succession, which I'll be running the board through just, you know, everyone's looking at succession because I think if the pandemic uh, taught us anything, there was a bit of a, a severing of the relationship <laughs> between employees and their employer and people are much more mobile and portable than they ever have been. So we really have to be thinking about how do we develop our own talent? How do we develop our own team? So those opportunities exist uh, for the team. You know, I think that there are a couple of ways uh, that we do that. Uh, the board does have uh, independent mm -hmm. consultants uh, who, you know, they get to select, they get to choose. We finished up that RFP process uh, last uh, spring. And so we've got Makita and then we've got Wilshire as the general uh, investment consultant to the board. And then Makita's got the asset class uh, side of it. Um, but what it really comes down to is the those independent consultants having a really good working relationship with the team. Uh, the consultants are, you know, typically embedded in in the teams where they are sitting at a table, uh, when we're looking at due diligence, we're looking at a particular deal and they're giving input there. They're also being able to advise the board if the board has questions on agenda items. And so I think that has worked really well here. And it, I, you know, in what, when I was in Washington state and I was the chair of the state investment board there, one of their governance uh, best practices, and I think it really was, is they have five independent uh, um, investment experts on the board. So each of them representing one of the asset classes. And they're sitting up there with the rest of the board who has voting authority. These five did not have voting authority, um, but they were there really to be part of that part of that group, part of that board, and be able to advise the, the board members, especially board members who are trying to get up to speed pretty quickly. Um, these are lay boards, typically don't come out of the investment industry. So having those consultants, having those investment experts, and being able to hear from others outside of your investment team, that, that's really important, I think, to not just fiduciary responsibility, but also to good governance. And so I think effectively, they're operating in that same manner, although they're not sitting you know, up on the dais with the, with the CalPERS board. And that wraps up our episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow for BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by Groom Law's Legal Eagles and the Schwab Network's Oliver Rennick to break down all the key news and events for the week. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe. Keep on saving. And don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio only podcasts. 
so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.